Are you thankful for the freedom that is found through Jesus Christ? Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we still have the freedom to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. There may come a day, and it might come soon, where we're not going to have this freedom. So we should take advantage of it while we have it. Amen. Praise the Lord. For those of you who don't know, you can go ahead and put up my first slide. We're continuing on the... The stories that change the world, which are the parables of Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to look at the Good Samaritan. I'm never going to get it all in tonight, so we're going to just do part one this evening. It's taken from Luke chapter 10, verses 10, I mean, verses 25 through 37. As always, before I go, I'm going to ask that the Lord anoint me and anoint you as well, because we need God to give the word and we need God to receive the word. Amen. So, Father God, we thank you that there is freedom in this place tonight. I thank you, Father, that we have freedom from sickness and freedom from pain, that we are through you and able to enjoy freedom from suffering, Lord God, freedom from from persecution, freedom from the things that would try to distract us this evening from receiving your word. So I pray, God, that there would be freedom in my body to bring forth the word of the Lord this evening. That your anointing and that your Holy Spirit would be upon me, Father God, that there would be no distraction or no disruptions, no disturbances, Father God, to the giving of your word. And that there would be no distractions to receiving it either. We confess our need for you, Father God, from the pulpit and from the pew. We need you this evening. We thank you the freedom that can be found in your presence. We pray that we would enjoy it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As usual, before I share tonight's parable and actually read the word of the Lord, I want to paint a picture of what's going on prior to Jesus telling this story, because I think it helps. It gives us a better understanding. I want to look at what it was that solicited this response or these words that we're going to read, starting in verses 25, and I won't read them yet, so that we can gain a better understanding of it of of ourselves. How many of you know it's good to understand the words that we read? If we don't understand them... Uh, We can't put them into practice. Uh, The Bible tells us that we suffer because of lack of knowledge. So I want us to understand what we read so we don't suffer so that we can get an understanding of what God says. One of the things, the first things that I want us to see is that even though Jesus is speaking in this passage, in this parable to all of us, even though he's surrounded by a large crowd like he so often is, here in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and you can turn there, I'm still not going to read it yet, but Jesus in this passage is about to make a specific individual personally accountable to the Word of God. He's about to make a specific individual personally responsible for what he's about to hear. How many of you know that the gospel is a personal gospel? Amen. The reality is what you and I always have to keep in mind is that we have a personal God and a personal gospel as well. We serve a Savior that is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows our going out and he knows our coming in. He knows our rising up and he knows our laying down and he knows everything that we do in between those two moments in our life. Amen. We have a personal God. He knows you by name. He knows me by name. He knows everyone in here by their name. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He knows every word that we're about to speak before it even crosses over our lips because we serve a personal God. We also have a personal gospel church. 
The word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that that the word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. It's able to do things that no other gospel can do. Amen. This gospel is so personal, the word tells us, that it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of every one of our hearts that are in this place tonight because it is a personal gospel. And even though it's been written to and read by billions, church, of individuals all across the globe and all throughout the ages, it has the power and it has the ability to change each and every individual life that reads it. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that this gospel is a personal gospel in my life, that it understands exactly where I am at life, that that I serve a God that understands the very need that I have when no one else might know it. I have a personal God that knows everything that I'm going through, every one of my pains, every one of my thoughts, every one of the intentions of my heart. And he has a gospel that can personally direct me in the in in the path that I need to follow. Amen. It's a personal God and a personal gospel. And and the reality is that all of us are accountable to that God and all of us are accountable to this gospel. And here in Luke 10, Jesus is about to do just what I talked about. He's about to make someone personally accountable to the word of God. He's about to address a man, an individual in the crowd who knew the word. The Bible says that he was an expert in the word. He was an expert in the law. But what we're going to find out is that he wasn't living up to it. He was an expert in the law, but he wasn't living up to the law. He was an expert in the word, but he wasn't living up to the word. This man that Jesus addresses, the Bible says, was an expert in the law. He studied it. He memorized it. He quoted. He knew it by heart, but he just wasn't putting it into practice. He wasn't applying what he read. He wasn't applying what he knew. He wasn't applying what he learned to his own personal life. He wasn't holding himself accountable to the word which he knew, church. And we have to be careful never to do the same thing. You see, it's not about how much word you know. It's about living up to the word that you know. Because the reality is God would rather have someone that's living up to the little bit of word that they know than an individual that can't live up to any of the word that they know. It's not about how much you can memorize even though you need to memorize. It's not about how much you can quote even though you should be able to quote it so you can get yourself through storms and get yourself through trials and get yourselves through tribulations. It's not about how much you know. It's about how much you live up to what you know. This is what makes us the the kind of disciple that Jesus is looking for. This is kind of what he's going to start speaking in this parable. Because God's more interested in doers of his word than he is in hearers only. You see, it does you no good to come into the house of God and hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And never do anything with what you heard. It does you no good to to listen to the TV preachers. It does you no good to open up the word of God and read and read and read and read. And then do nothing with what you've heard. Because the Bible says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because the ones that hear only, they deceive themselves. They're like that man that looks in the mirror and God is telling them, I want you to see this and I want you to see that. And you got to take care of this and you got to take care of that. But as soon as you close the book, as soon as you walk out of the church, as soon as you, as soon as you turn away from the mirror, you forget what God revealed to you. You see, that individual is an individual that deceives himself. The individual that deceives himself, I would consider a fool. It's kind of hard to deceive yourself. It's kind of hard to fool yourself. It's kind of hard to trick yourself. So I would 
I would consider that individual a fool that has the ability to deceive themselves. And this is what God is saying that we must avoid. You see, what, what I want you to understand is that Jesus is telling these parables in a format that people can understand so that he can bring them out of a place of ignorance into a place of accountability. You see, Jesus breaks these things down to a way that they can understand, a way that they can identify with, a, a way that they can't have any excuses anymore. And so he uses things that take place in everyday life. He tells stories that they can identify with and say, yeah, I understand that. Now that you understand that, Jesus is saying you got to live up to that. So we need to keep that in mind that he's trying to bring us through these parables that I'm telling you, church, out of a place of ignorance into a place of accountability. He's trying to bring us into a place of true discipleship, like I talked about last week, to a place where we not only know better, but a place where we do better. Amen. How many of you want to do better? How many of you want to be a better Christian? So we've got to put into practice the things that we know and the things that we hear. And this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to know better so that we can do better. So here, finally, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, as he often is, church, is surrounded by a large group of followers, individuals that he's gaining influence over, individuals that he is gaining popularity among. And now from this crowd that gathers around him, in verse 25, we find the following happen. Luke 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law, like I just said, an individual who knew the law, studied the law, memorized the law, could quote the law, he considered himself a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus asked, what do you think it says? To which the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Now do this and you will live. And again, Jesus is reminding us and he's reminding the crowd and he's reminding the individual that it's not enough to to know the word. You must do the word. It's not enough to know the word or memorize the word. You've got to put this word into action. He said, now do this. The very thing you said you know you need to do, do it, he says. He says, put it into practice in your everyday life. He wants us to live what we learn because to him who knows what is right and doesn't do it, it is what? It is sin. You see, Jesus doesn't want us sinning. So he's telling us if you're going to make yourself available to the word of God, if you're going to come to church and sit under a pastor, if you're going to open up the word and read the words of God, then I want you to start living what you learn. Because as soon as you put yourself under the word of God, under you, uh, as soon as you set yourself into a pew and you listen to a pastor break bread and share with you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're making yourself accountable. And if you don't do what you know what is right... It's sin. And Jesus doesn't want us to fall into this, into this area of our life. Because if we're living in sin, we're not going to find blessing. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't do what's right, you can't be blessed. If you don't live, if you don't live what you learn, you can't be blessed. You can't have the windows of heaven opened into your life. It's one thing to know it. It's another to do it. It's, you see, it's when we put our faith into action. It's when we put hands to our faith and we put feet to our faith. We put a mouth to our faith and eyes to our faith. Then heaven begins to move on our behalf. Do this, Jesus said, and you will have life. Do this, Jesus said, because the man wasn't doing it. 
He knew what he knew it, but he wasn't doing it. The reality is if the man was doing it, Jesus wouldn't have never said do it. He would have said, you are doing this, and I congratulate you for this. But he wasn't doing it, so Jesus said, do it. But the man wanted to justify himself. The Bible says in verse 29, he wanted to justify the fact that he wasn't living up to what he already knew. He wanted to justify the fact that he wasn't living up to what he memorized. He wasn't living up to what he could quote. He wasn't living up to the, to the word that he had already learned. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, he quoted what he was supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And the very first thing that I want you to see is that the man knew, I believe with all of my heart, the man knew in the depths of his soul that he wasn't living up to the word that he knew. He wasn't living up to the word that he had memorized, wasn't living up to the word that he could quote at the drop of a hat. He, he, he wanted, he was trying to justify himself, the Bible says. The fact is, I believe this man saw his weakness. He knew so much word that he knew he wasn't living up to it. He knew so much word, he began to see the, the weaknesses in his life. He began to see the failures in his life. He began to see the sin in his life, but he wasn't doing anything about it. I believe with all of my heart, and he tried to justify himself. The Bible says, just like I think we often do. You see, this man and us so often, instead of admitting and confessing our sin to God, instead of humbling ourselves and coming before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart, instead of laying ourselves bare before the Lord when we can identify the sins and the wrongdoings and and the things that grieve God in our own life, instead of saying like David did, search me, O God, and know my heart and know my thoughts, instead of opening ourselves up bare before the Lord after looking at the Word of God and having things pointed out, we try to justify our sins, we try to paint over our sins, we try to excuse our sins when all God wants us to do is be like David that is willing to stand there and say, God, I'm opening up my soul. I'm opening up my heart. I may not be able to see the sin that's hiding deep within my soul, but if you would just search me, oh God, if you would just know my thoughts, if you would know my ways, if you would just see, oh God, if there's any wicked way inside of my soul and point it out to me, then I'll fall on my knees and I will repent and I will make things right with my maker. This is what this man should have done, but he didn't do it. He tried to justify the fact that he wasn't living up to the word of God. And so often we do the same exact thing. We justify our faults and we justify our failures and it's because someone said this and because someone did that and because pastor didn't this and because the pastor didn't that because my husband did this or my wife said that or because my kids failed this or my kids failed that and we begin to justify our attitude and we begin to justify our actions and we begin to justify why we are not living up to the precious word of God. God is saying, don't do that. This is what this man did. We try to paint a better picture of ourselves than we deserve to have painted. We try to paint a better picture of ourselves than the truth really paints of us. It's what this man was trying to do. He was trying to paint over his sin just like we do, church. But the truth is, without the blood of Jesus Christ, our sin can never be covered 
Until our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ through the personal, personal act of personal repentance, church, our sin will always show through. Our sin will always come to the surface and Jesus will always see it. You see, this man who was an expert in the law came marching up to God like he knew it from, from, from head to tail. He knew it inside and out. Oh, I know the gospel. He showed up to Jesus and as soon as he came up to Jesus, Guess what? Jesus saw his sin. Jesus saw the sin that he did tried painting over with all his self-righteousness and with all of his knowledge and with all of his wisdom. And in the midst of it, Jesus saw the stain of sin seeping through. And he had to address it. And he does the same exact thing with you and I. Why do you think Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers? Why do you think he said that? Because they too tried to cover up their sin with their own good deeds. They tried to cover up their sin with their own good works. They tried to cover up their sin with their own self-righteousness. They thought if I put on a nice white robe, if I trim it with, if I trim it with some purple, if I hang some bells, if I put all on these jewels and if I dress myself upright, then God won't see my sin. Then the world won't see my sin. Then the pastor won't see my sin. Then my neighbor won't see my sin. If I can just dress the part. And Jesus saw through it all. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside. Boy, you're dressed up real good. But guess what? The stain of your sin is bleeding through those robes. And it bleeds through ours as well. I don't care what you do. You cannot wash away that stain of sin. I don't care how good your deeds are. I don't care how good your works are. I don't care how much you tithe. How much you give. You cannot wash away the stain of your sin. The only place that our sin is washed away is when we're on our knees at the foot of Jesus Christ. Repenting over our sins. And then the blood of heaven washes away those sins. Then we stand rightfully before the Lord God Almighty. What can I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do nothing. You can't. He asked the wrong question. Here's a a man of the law, a religious man. He knew it inside and out and he thought he could do something to inherit eternal life. The only thing we can do to inherit eternal life is to bend a knee before our maker and say, God, I have sinned. God, I've not lived up to your word. God, I've grieved you. God, I've disappointed you. God, I've, I've, I've rent the, uh, the, 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 the windows of heaven and I need you to forgive me. That's what you do to find eternal life. I don't care how much word you know. I don't care how nice you dress. I don't care how you carry yourself. There is nothing you can do. It is the free gift of God through grace. Lest any man should boast over their own works. And this is what so many people tried to do in the generation that Jesus was living in. Oh, if I could just do this, then I'll be saved. No. You can't do anything. Uh, get back to where I'm going. But this is why he called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. Because they thought they could paint over their sin. But the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's what he was asking. Who is it that I am to love like myself? 
Who is it that I am to love like myself? And what I want you to notice in this passage, church, is how the man immediately tried to narrow his personal responsibility towards God. Tried to narrow his personal responsibility towards others. Who is it really that is my neighbor? I want you to notice how he was trying to see who he didn't have to love. When you read this and you will, you study, you will understand what this man was asking when you study who he was. And I'll tell you what this man was truly asking is who I don't have to love, who he didn't have to serve, who he didn't have to help, who he was allowed to ignore, who he could walk on by. He wanted to see whose need he could overlook church. He wanted to find out from Jesus whose need can I pass by? Whose need really isn't that important? Who can I consider not as important? Who can I, who can I brush to the side? Because the reality is this man was an elite Jew. He was an elite Jew who wasn't about to serve anyone outside of his circle. He wasn't about to lower himself. He wasn't about to humble himself. He owned his own servants and there was no way this man was going to become a servant to anyone else. When he asked the question... The expert in the law wanted to know who he didn't have to give up his seat for, who he didn't have to hug or pray for, who he didn't have to reach out to, whose burden he didn't have to bear, whose load he didn't have to share. The first thing he tried to do was limit his personal responsibility and accountability to God and to those around him. And who is my neighbor? He asked Jesus. And how often we do the very same thing, church. How often do we try to narrow God's commands so we don't have to obey them? How often do we try to minimize the word of God so we don't have to live up to the word of God? How often do we let the devil do in our lives what he did in the garden of, did in the garden of Eden with Eve when he said to her, that's not really what God said. That's not really what God meant. And we find the same thing going on in our culture today. Homosexuality isn't really an abomination. It's just an alternative lifestyle. Abortion isn't really an abomination before the Lord. It's just a freedom of choice. Drunkenness really isn't an abomination before the Lord. It's just a way of coping. It's just a disease we've got to treat and deal with. And we allow the devil to narrow our personal responsibilities to live a godly and holy life by narrowing and limiting the word of God in our lives. We justify our sins. We whitewash over them just like the generation back then and just like the generation is doing today. We excuse them and we use fancy words to cover them up. But Jesus says your sins are still showing through and your sins are still going to find you out. I can still see them, Jesus is saying to the crowd. He could see them then and he can see them today. And every day, every generation gets worse and worse. Worse and worse and worse. I wonder, church, like the expert in the law, how often do we find ourselves looking for the least that we can do? You see, this is what this man was asking. What's the least that I can do to inherit eternal life? What's the least amount of people I can reach out to and still have eternal life? Who's, who, what's the least amount of money I can give and still receive blessings from God? What's the least amount of service I can give to the church and still be in good standing with the pastor? What's the least that I can do? This is what this man was asking. What's the least that I can do? He was looking for shortcuts like I talked about last week to God's glory. He was looking for discounts like we talked about last week. For the just enough to get by. 
And I wonder how often do we shrink our circle of personal accountability and our personal spiritual responsibility to God and to others. Because we don't want to go outside of this circle. We don't want to cross this line. We don't want to have to minister to that person, that, this, and that. We don't want to have to do the things that are difficult. We don't want to have to go the extra mile. So so who really is my neighbor, God? Because anything outside of that circle, I'm not going to touch. That's what he was saying. You define my circle and I'll stay within it. But he failed to realize that the circle encompasses any, every single person he comes in contact with. He fails to realize the great commission that said, go therefore into all the earth. Go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. You see, God doesn't limit our circle, church. He died for every single soul so that they might be saved. So every single soul is our neighbor. And I, and I don't want to get it too, too ahead of myself, but who is my neighbor, the man asked. And this is what Jesus said. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. I'm going to stop there and not read on yet. Because what I want you to understand is that Jesus starts this parable by painting a picture of the culture. He's painting a picture of the culture then and it's a reflection of the culture today. It's hostile, it's violent, it's brutal. It's a reflection of the culture of the devil who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He'll never bring a blessing into your life. He'll never bring goodness into your life. The devil has one goal. It's to kill you. It's to steal from you. It's to destroy you. It's to ruin your finances, ruin your mind, ruin your health. It's to take away from you every single thing that God has. It is the culture of the world then, and it is the culture of the world today. It's a culture that is completely consumed by me, myself, and I, leaving no room for anyone else, let alone the character and the culture of God. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, this is a culture that is filled with lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, but lovers of evil, treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That defines the culture then and it defines the culture today. The truth is, church, this culture is filled with self-centered individuals that are waiting to strike just like the thieves who are lined up on the road to Jericho. It's looking for individuals that they can abuse, someone they can take advantage of, someone they can defeat, someone they can devour. We see them on the TV, on the nightly news every single night of the week. The things that you read about that took place on the road to Jericho take place in our land every single day, every single night of the year. You can watch them on TV. There's not a day that goes by without someone falling among the thieves because it is the culture, church, that we live in. It's a culture that we live in. And the road to Jericho was exactly the same. This 17-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho was one of the most treacherous roads that anyone could travel. It descended 3,000 feet from Jerusalem all the way to Jericho, which was 800, 800 feet below sea level. It was such a treacherous road that the Romans called it the Red and Bloody Way. It was such a treacherous road that the Romans set up watchtowers along the way so they could try to control the bandits that would seek to steal from their, from their Roman people. It was that treacherous of a road. 
So what happened to this man, what I want you to understand on his way to Jericho was commonplace. It happened all the time. When, when Jesus told this story, they understood what he was telling because they watched it on the nightly news just like us every single day. This was commonplace. What I want you to understand, though, is that in this parable, Jesus was not addressing the behavior of the world. He says nothing about the thieves. He says nothing about how atrocious their their behavior was. He says nothing about how evil they were. He says nothing about how wicked they were. In this parable, he does not address the culture of the world because it does not take him by surprise. Nothing about what happened to that man on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho caught Jesus by surprise. It happened every single day. He wasn't surprised by it, church. It's what he expected. This was the normal behavior of the world. It was the resulting action of sin. So he he didn't even bother addressing it. What I want you to see is that in this parable, instead of addressing the culture of of the world and the behavior of the world, he addresses the behavior of the church. He addresses the culture of the Christian when he says in verses 31 to 35... A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw the man who had fallen among the thieves, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, the one who assisted the priests in the temple duties, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, who was hated and despised by the Jews because he was part Gentile and part Jew, he was despised as he traveled and came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra, for any extra expense you may have. You see, like I said, church, verse 30 didn't surprise Jesus whatsoever. Verse 30 reflected and reflects a culture that is ruled by sin and ruled by Satan. Verse 30 demonstrates the behavior of a sin-infested world. And Jesus expects expects that behavior from that world. There was nothing about what took place on that road. And here's what I want you to understand. There was nothing that took place on that road that surprised Jesus. There's nothing that takes place on our nightly news that surprises Jesus. It's the way the world acts when they're not regenerated. It's the way a sinful heart acts. It's the way a sinful man behaves. It's the way sinful women behave. They're unregenerated. They're wicked. They're evil. There's nothing about them that is good. All of our own righteousness is even like filthy rags, the Bible says. So what happened in verse 30 on the way to to Jericho didn't take Jesus by surprise. It's what he expected, church, from the world. But from the blood-bought believer, from the so-called saints, from the household of faith church, from the church of the living God, from the sons and daughters of the Most High God, from those who call themselves Christians, for those who call themselves believers, there is a higher expectation 
There is something, an attitude, a culture that Jesus or God uh, hopes to find when it comes to you and me. When it comes to the individual that says, I'm a Christian, the individual that says, I am a believer. That's exactly why Paul said in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the patterns and the cultures of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what the will of the Father is. You see, what you need to understand, what Paul was actually saying, he knew this roadway as well. He was a Roman. Paul was saying the same exact thing. I don't want you to be conformed to the culture of this world. I don't want you to be conformed to the culture of the the red and bloody way because it's hostile. It's violent. It's not a reflection of the Father. It's not a reflection of the kingdom. I don't want you to be conformed to this world because this world is filled with brutality. It's filled with selfishness. It's filled with all of these things that Timothy outlined. It's filled with unforgiveness. It's filled with slander. It's filled with with, uh, self-pleasures. It's filled with those who boast. It's filled with pride. It's filled with abuse, Jesus is saying. So instead of being conformed to the culture of this world, I want you to be conformed to the culture of the kingdom of God. I want you to be conformed to the culture and the character of Jesus Christ. This is what he is saying. Don't be conformed to the culture of this world, but rather love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul was saying, prove God's will. By creating a new culture. This is what Paul was trying to develop. You need to create a new culture by creating uh, kindness and gentleness. Uh, We are to create a culture of caring. A culture church that considers others more important than itself. What we must realize is that as believers, like I said, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we are to be cultivating a culture that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Just like the Samaritan did. We're not even going to have time to look at him. I'm going to look at him next week. But we need to look at the the culture that the priest and the Levite were cultivating in their own life. The priest and the Levite didn't want to be bothered. The priest and the Levite didn't want to risk it. They didn't want to stop and help. They thought it was enough to know the law. They thought it was enough to memorize the law. They thought it was enough to quote the law. They thought it was enough to carry the law. They thought it was enough to to rely on their ritualistic self-righteousness. So they walked on by, leaving a person in need to suffer the attacks of the enemy. The sad reality is the priest and the Levite conformed themselves to the culture of the world. They conformed themselves to the culture of the red and bloody way. They conformed themselves to the culture of the devil instead of the culture of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Go ahead and put on the music. I've got a few minutes, but I'm going to bring this to a close as I touch on these two individuals. The priest, the spiritual one, the so-called holy one, the righteous one wasn't about to dirty his royal robes. He wasn't about to go out of his way. The one, listen to me, the one whose position obliged him to compassion. The role of a priest, he was obliged to compassion. He was obliged, church, to tenderness. He was obliged to mercy and to grace. But he walked past one of his own people, and instead of restoring, church, the fallen in a spirit of gentleness... He left him lying there in a spirit of self-righteousness, and he walked on by. 
I want you to get this and understand it. The priest who walked on by, he went on to offer up prayers unto the Lord while his neighbor was dying in a ditch. I need you to understand, church, that this priest who was obliged to compassion, the one that walked on by, he went on to sprinkle blood on a sacrificial altar while his neighbor was bleeding to death on the side of the road. You need to understand that this individual was more concerned about his ritualistic righteousness than his moral responsibilities to his neighbor. He didn't consider this man his neighbor. You see... We have to understand that the one who should have exercised the gracious duties of his office failed to love his neighbor as himself. He failed to consider others more important than whatever it was that he had to do that day, more important than himself. He failed to cultivate the culture of the kingdom in his life. For one reason or another, in this moment of time, the priest narrowed his personal spiritual responsibilities and he walked on by And the Levite did the very same thing. The Levite, he was the assistant to the priest. He was the temple steward. He was the one that was to make sure everything in the temple was in order. He was the one in line for the priesthood. When he came upon this wounded man, when he came upon the one that was fallen, when he came upon the one that was half dead, the Bible says... He even looked upon him, the word says, but he still wasn't moved to compassion. He still wasn't moved to care enough to do anything. He still wasn't moved to kindness. He still wasn't moved enough to be inconvenienced or put out. He wasn't stirred enough to consider this man his neighbor, the Bible says, or love him as himself. And he walked on by. And he left him there to die. Not thinking about anyone else but themselves. And how how often... That can be a reflection of us as well. How often we can find ourselves in the same exact place, the ones who are to be about our Father's business, the ones, church, who are to be moved with compassion, the ones who are to be fulfilling our spiritual duties and responsibilities to God, to our brothers, to our next-door neighbors, to those who we come in contact with, the ones who are in line for a royal inheritance, church, the ones who have been commissioned to change the world, don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to risk it. We've got things that are more important. We've got other things that are taking up our time, other things that are occupying ourselves. Something else is pressing. It's not my problem. It's not my fault that they've fallen. I've got something else I've got to do. I've got another need I have to meet. I've got my own cares. I've got my own concerns. I've got my own responsibilities. We'll leave him to someone else. We'll leave that need unmet. I'll I'll, I'll leave that concern not prayed for. I'll leave that wound untended to. And we begin to cultivate the culture of this world instead of the culture of Jesus Christ, instead of a culture of caring and a culture of kindness. We begin to demonstrate and cultivate the same culture of the Levite and and the priest who thought it was enough to play the part. Thought it was enough to know the word. Thought it was enough to read the word. Thought it was enough to just come to church. Thought it was enough to sing a few songs. Thought it was enough to put some money in the plate. But when it came to the individual that was fallen, 
When it came to the individual that was broken and in need, how often do we walk on by because we have not cultivated the culture of Christ in our life? Because we have said to ourselves, they're not my neighbor. And we leave them lying there wounded and hurt, bruised and beaten and battered. And all God is waiting for is for that individual that is willing to widen their circles and inconvenience themselves for a moment, just like Christ did. Willing to hang himself upon a cross and say, that person is my neighbor. And that person is my neighbor. And that person is my neighbor. You see, Jesus was willing to look across the, to the timeline of eternity and he saw you and he saw me. He saw us in our moment of need. He saw you and me when we were overtaken by the thieves, when we had fallen along our way. And he said, someone has to be their neighbor. Someone has to care for them. Someone has to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So he stayed upon the cross and he died for you and me. This is what Jesus is trying to say through this parable. Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. I don't care what color they are. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care what kind of clothes they wear. I don't care what side of the the street they live on. Every single person is your neighbor, Jesus said. And you and I cannot be like the priest or the Levite and walk on by. You have to be willing to cultivate the character and the culture of Jesus Christ in our own lives. The Pharisee and the Levite had much to be expected of them, church, just like us. But the truth is they failed miserably to live up to those expectations. They failed miserably to be a reflection of the Father who demonstrated his love towards us. And while we were sinners, while we were undeserving, while we were fallen along the way, or even while we might have been one of those brutal thieves, he died for us. He considered us his neighbor and he considered us a friend and he died for us. So the question is, as I close, what culture are we cultivating in our lives? Are we the priest? Are we the Levite? Are we the expert in the law who tried to justify their actions? Or tonight, are we going to be like David? Because I'm not even going to get to the Good Samaritan. That's next week. Or are we going to be like David who says, God, tonight I'm willing to open up my heart. I'm willing to open up my life because there's some things that have been revealed. There's some things that have been pointed out. And tonight I want to become a doer of your word and not just a hearer only. But God, the only way that's going to happen is if you point out those things in my life that I need to repent over. You need to point out those things that I got to that I got to seek forgiveness for. You got to move out those things, God, that are getting in the way of me cultivating the culture of Jesus Christ in my life. So we're either going to be those that cultivate the culture of the world or we're going to be those that cultivate the culture of Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're saying, God, I want you to cultivate the culture of the kingdom in my heart. I want you to do a work in me tonight and take out all those things that don't belong. I want you to stand with me tonight. That is you saying, God, tonight I'm making myself available for you to cultivate the, the, the culture and the, the character of Christ in my life. Next week, we're going to look at the, how the good Samaritan did that. But tonight, we've got to say, I, I'm not going to be like the, the priest. 
I'm not going to be like the, the Levite. I'm not going to be like the expert in the law who just knows what to do. I'm going to be the individual that, that, that does what he's just learned. Amen. Father God, I thank you for every individual that is in your house tonight. I thank you for those individuals, God, who have been willing to stand up tonight and say, like David, search me, O God. Know my heart, know my thoughts, know everything about me, O God. Search me through and through. And if there be any wicked way in us tonight, God, I pray that you would forgive us of those sins, that you would forgive us of those unrighteousnesses, that you would forgive us of those failures, O God, that you would forgive us for the times that we have cultivated the culture of this world in our lives instead of the culture of the kingdom of God and the character of Christ in our lives. Forgive us, O oh God, for the times we have been like the priest or the Levite who thought it was enough to just put on a white robe. Forgive us, O oh God, for the times we thought it was enough to just come to church and sing some songs, thought it was enough to carry a big Bible, thought it was enough to put a bumper sticker on the back of our car, thought it was enough to just talk the talk and not walk the walk. But I pray tonight, God, that you would raise up some doers of your word and not just hearers only. Individuals that are willing to walk the walk, God, and not just talk the talk. Individuals that are willing to open up their heart, oh God, so that the kingdom of God can be cultivated in their life. So that the character of Christ can come forth in their life. We pray that the precious blood of Jesus Christ would wash away every sin that is represented in your house this evening. Because we have to admit that there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing, Father, that we can do in our own strength. Nothing we can do in our own wisdom that can bring us into right standing with you. It comes through the personal act of repentance. I pray that you would revive that, Father, spiritual discipline in our lives. God, that we wouldn't try to whitewash over our faults and we wouldn't try to whitewash over our failures and we wouldn't try to whitewash over or justify the sins and the shortcomings in our life. But that we would be willing on a daily basis to find our way to the foot of the cross and say, God, forgive me for I have sinned. And Father, when we do that and when your people do that, I pray that at that point you would open up the windows of heaven, God, that you would raise them up and that you would exalt them, Father, to places of honor, places of healing, places of prosperity, Father God, places of provision, places of supernatural power in their lives. So God, take this word and seal it in our souls this evening so that we would walk by it and live by it and talk by it and act by it. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Can we just bless the Lord tonight, church? Amen. Amen. Don't miss next week because we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan the individual that we are to, supposed to be like. But if you have a special need, I'd be happy to tarry with you. And-